This week is Parshat Kitavo, right? And we are in our triennial of Kitavo. So that means that we are on the last third, and we're really going to look at Deuteronomy 28. Um, who can tell me just by a, having preemptive reading or being a longtime member of Torah study, who can tell me what they think of when they think of Parshat Kitavo? Just to kind of start us off. Yes. Feel free to unmute and share once you have, uh, once you've got the idea. Anyone know anything about Kitavo? Because otherwise I have to teach. So I would much prefer first hear what all of you think. Uh, what is Parsha Kitavo about? So Kitavo definitely has this, uh, another hint of blessings and curses in it. That's definitely a piece of it. We're towards the end of our Torah, right? Because we have Rosh Hashanah happening a week from now, essentially, though other clergy do not like when I remind us of how close we are to the holidays, which means that we're only three or four weeks away from rewinding Torah. So we have to be at the end of our journey. So Kitavo is a piece of Moses's speech in which he's reminding the people of blessings and curses. Does that sound familiar to everyone? Anything specific that stands out before we jump in? So I'll be honest, this is the portion that has, again, a bit of randomization to it because we're at the end of Moses' speech. And so one thing that I want to kind of point out is when we read Torah, we read Torah with a lens of intentionality. We think every single word, for good reason, comes from a intentional place. And that's true, but you also have to remember to read into the literary notion of it. So actually, I'm going to sign back in as well on this because I see that there's some people sending chat things, and I want to make sure that I, all right, I'm not going to reclaim host. Stay muted. I just want to be able to see the chat as it goes. Okay. So yes, uh, Judy, Judith, I'm going to need you to unmute if you can, though, so we can hear you. Blessings and curses, we've been talking a lot about. Mm -hmm. If you do this thing, you'll be blessed. If you do that thing, you won't be. And therefore, choose life is the final comment. Correct. Right? So therefore, choose life. Now, And life means choosing the right things, then. That's right. So one thing that is, like I was saying before, in that is that even though each blessing, each curse, each word is intentional in our text, intentionality has to be seen in two different ways. It's a little weird seeing both of me, so let me stop video right there. It's easier. What I will say is this. This speech by Moses, was it thought out? Did he have six months to be thinking about his final address? Was this a patiently planned, written out, meticulous speech that is given deliberately to help the people as they move forward through this journey? Or are these the words of a leader who has just found out that he can't go in with the people? Which, which one is this? Is this the thought out speech or is this the emotional address of a leader? Yeah, Emelinda. I mean, isn't it a carefully crafted, well thought out set of uh, instructions, rules that was written many, many years after Moses and then put into his mouth? So now you're looking at reading it from a hypercritical lens of the authorship. I'm asking when we read this in this moment, what are we supposed to read it as? 
Are we supposed to read this as Moses had the time to collect his thoughts, to carefully craft them, right? When I have a bar bat mitzvah, the family, the parents ask me a month in advance the rules of writing their speech. And then the day before, they tell me they're still working on it. But the reality is they've been thinking about it for a month. Is that this or is this the moment in which something happens and you turn and you emotionally give the kind of address to your loved ones, which one is it? Is it thought out or is it spontaneous? What what are we doing in between? Can't it be both? Well, you can play that for sure. We can have a debate, like I said, uh, the notion of us having some type of uh, argument for the sake of heaven. But... I want us to decide as a group how we're going to read this today because it makes a difference in the way we see the words, in the way we see the actions. And I've seen a few different faces change during this question. So tell me where your your mind is at with it. Is that like, just think back to the story. Moses hits a rock. What does God say? God says, you can't enter the land. That's your punishment. And then begins... Moses' address to the people. And so I want you to think about that on this side today. I want us to think about and remember that a lot of this is an emotional address. This is not a high holiday sermon. This is not a speech that you are given two months notice to give. Moses is talking to the people in a way that comes from a little bit of disbelief. Moses asks just prior to starting his address of Deuteronomy, if if God is sure that Moses can't go into the land. And God has to reiterate that fact. So when we read this piece of Kitavo, when we read all the blessings and curses, when we read those who will be blessed and those who will be cursed, not just for the, not the curse itself, but what they will do to cause being cursed, we have to remember that we are not reading something that we are supposed to see as carefully crafted out. Now, that doesn't mean each word of Torah isn't intentional, but it means the way we see Moses the way we see Moses's words come from a place of emotion. So why did I spend almost 10 minutes on us deciding this piece? Because I think it makes a really big difference in how we're going to see the words. So let's look at this piece of Deuteronomy that orders the kind of curses that will happen. Uh, for anyone who has it open, we are at... 20, let me pull it back up now, right here at 28.16. Oh, no, that's too far. Go back. We are at 27.15. Uh, Does anyone have the text pulled up and wants to read? In the English is fine. A few of these lines of the people who will be cursed. Sure. Can you like, get a screen share of this? Or uh, we, those of us on Zoom. Uh, no, no, those of you on Zoom. I was just pulling it up to drop a link in the chat. Uh, let me grab it, and then I'm happy to read, if that's okay. Sure, but I, I will intro it for those of you who are waiting for the link. It starts with, cursed be anyone who makes a molten image of God who creates an idol. Cursed be the person who res- who both makes it and the one who responds to it. And the next one comes out. 
Cursed be anyone who insults their mother or father, and everyone shall say amen. And then cursed be the one who moves a neighbor's landmark, meaning if you mess with their property, and everyone would say amen. Do you want to take over, Melinda, or do you want me to keep reading it? Cursed be the one who misdirects a blind person who is underway, and all the people shall say amen. Cursed be the one who subverts the rights of the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be the one who lies with any beast, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be the man who lies with his mother-in-law, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be the one who accepts a bribe in the case of the murder of an innocent person, and all the people shall say, yes, Amen. And the one right before that one is, Cursed be the one who strikes down another in secret. Mister. So, so I, let us think about this for a minute. We start with making idols, disrespecting your parents, moving your neighbor's stuff, misdirecting someone who is um, disabled and, and making their life and hardships harder, subverting the rights of the stranger and the fatherless and the widow, those who are needy in the society, uh, then go into the sexual misconduct pieces, then go from there into murder, and then go into accepting a bribe in the case of murder of an innocent person. So it's not even just bribery. That last one is, curse be the one who accepts a bribe in the case of a murder of an innocent person. So, do those curses feel like they're following an order of intensity? When we start to read them, does it feel like something that is getting more detrimental and dangerous to society as it builds on? Right? Start with the idols, then get to disrespect, then get to disrespecting your neighbor's space, then get into keeping and safeguarding those who are vulnerable and less fortunate, then get into continuing those, but into a more graphic side of, of sexual exploitation, then getting into the sake of sanctity of a life altogether with murder. And lastly, this really interesting piece of if you do this thing, you are part of corroding society because you're letting someone get away with murder and you're benefiting from it, which feels like a double hit to our text. So if we are supposed to read this as an emotional note from Moses, how do we feel about what seems pretty deliberate and intentional in the order of talking about these curses? What do you notice in this order? Yeah, Lee. Does it go from the individual to the family to um, the community? Okay, yeah, there is a piece that does a transition of, like, who is being affected inside of that. Sure, sure, Emelinda. Like, don't make idols is, like, because that's not okay with God, and it progresses. The worst, the worst offenses are the things that are harmful to your fellow humans. Like, okay. it's actually less bad to offend God than to harm your fellow humans. Yeah, certainly. Who else? Who else sees? Look for look for notes and inferences and thoughts inside of this order. What else? I'm not putting anyone specifically on the hot seat, but no one sees any other pattern in here. All right, then let me ask you the first question. If this was truly an impromptu speech, 
think back to the way in which you talk to someone impromptu. Would you remember to start with the least important and get more serious? Or would you probably come out swinging with the most important, most critical and crucial rules first, and by the end, you're on the ones that don't matter so much? Would you probably start with, don't lie about murder, and by the end be like, please don't craft a god out of that coconut? Right? Like maybe that you'd start with the thing that feels most important. And by the end, you're just kind of throwing out more rules. Does it seem almost counterintuitive that an emotional speech would have followed such a logical trajectory of expansion of intensity? Anyone else notice that idea? Does that seem strange to anyone else? Why do you think this might be the case then? Why do you think our text, a text that is written very intentionally, would have an impromptu emotional speech done in a way that feels like a speech that Moses had started to plan. I see a hand, but then it went down. Yeah, David, you're muted right now. If you can remember to unmute, that'd be perfect. The, you know, it's interesting, Daniel, I, because Moses is giving this, I, I sort of have the feeling um, that Moses is saying goodbye. And he's saying to the Jews, I'm not going to be your leader, and um, I accept that, and when you get there, do the following, but the order that you uh, focus on, because Moses is so close to God, it makes sense if Moses is giving this uh, for the first statement, you know, and then moving down to the personal and oh, by the way, when you get there, don't harm your fellow human being. Yeah, I certainly agree with that piece. It is certainly a piece of the perspective of Moses. I, I, what I'm fascinated by in this space is, is it impromptu or is it deeply thought out? And, well, and again, it might be both to an extent, but we have to make sense of how it can be both. I think if Dave were giving the speech, Dave would say, don't harm your fellow human being first. But it's Moses giving the speech. And Moses is different. Moses is God's right-hand man who has just been disappointed, saying, I know I'm not going to lead you in, but his focus is different than Dave's. Okay. I think that's very fair. Yeah, Mark, you are currently muted, Mark. It seems to me that this is uh, consistent with the overall project of the Deuteronomist to uh, uh, emphasize the priestly power and the priestly interest, uh, and then uh, to uh, 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 as a uh, as a uh, follow up on that, uh, once that consolidation of, of the priestly power and the centralization of the priestly power has been accomplished to remind uh, people of all of these other issues that are, uh, of course, the uh, the uh, real content of, of this and the thing that uh, one would have expected uh, uh, Moses to have uh, strong emotional reactions to. Although, as was just said, uh, Moses is God's guy, and uh, so he is probably uh, pretty interested as well. But 
this was written long after Moses. It was written by the Deuteronomist who had a different project in mind than Moses might have had. All right, so let's hold both these truths for a moment, right? The idea of looking at the literary side of who is Moses, what would the perspective have been? And now what you're really saying is to dive in deep, we have to compare these sets of laws, the Levitical set of laws and the Deuteronomistic set of laws. And so we actually have very similar laws, but there's some major contrast pieces. And the contrast pieces are what's really going to tell us why Deuteronomy goes out it. Now, we are branching into a more academic piece of this rather than looking at the what I think the text is trying to tell us about the emotional process for a person and the way in which they show love. But let's pause that for a second and get into this. There is a major fundamental difference in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. For starters, they have a fundamentally different notion about the covenantal relationship between God and Israel. Deuteronomy can imagine a disappearing Israel. Deuteronomy comes from, at minimum, Israel removed from its land, scattered among the nations, slowly fading. Why? Because of when it's written. But also because of its uh, its um, literary piece, that Moses doesn't know what's next. Back when Moses talks in Leviticus, the people are in a very different relationship with God. The people are still eating all their meals from the sky. The people are completely codependent on the guidance and leadership of the divine. And in Deuteronomy... They're preparing to go out and to operate their own land, to work and till and form governments. Remember, just two weeks ago, we looked at, maybe last week, we, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at if you want a king, how you're going to figure out your own government structure. So when we read in Deuteronomy, we are reading with a bit more of a notion that it is not a for sure the thing they're striving to might be finite. And in contrast, in the great rebuke of Leviticus, the, the author insists that God will forever remember the patriarchal promise. That's a big difference. The God of Leviticus won't destroy the covenant. The God of Deuteronomy, the slight change in the authorship, feels different because they're writing from a different place of concern and panic. So yes, I do certainly agree and see that piece. Uh, David, your hand has gone back up. Yeah, uh, Daniel, you know, this is fascinating in the sense, I just wonder, are you saying that the Deuteronomist, and maybe Mark will comment on this as well, is really the uh, Jewish equivalent to the authors of the Federalist Papers, saying we've got this Constitution, and now we have to figure out how to make this work. What do we really do every day that we're in the land. Uh, I, I like where your head is going with this notion. There's a, some slight finite differences in that the Federalist Papers are making sense of the Constitution. And this is like, let me re-explain the Constitution to you, right? Like, I do think that's a big piece of it. But I will remind you, I am not a critical lens at all times reader of Torah, because from where I'm sitting, I still think there's more about the way that Moses shows emotion than there is in the comparison between these two. However, it does help us understand the author's perspective when trying to write Moses's emotion. And yes, there is a difference in the perspective of God in just the different books alone. Uh, Emelinda, you are muted. Yeah. Uh, so from a storytelling perspective, 
having this moment for Moses build where he is surprised and having to give this speech, having received this news. Uh, and he starts with like, what's comfortable and easiest to say, because God already said, don't make any graven images. And, and over the course of the speech, Moses's confidence builds. And through these directives, he's coming to terms with understanding that he won't be there to keep leading the people as like a character moment for a leader protagonist. We see his, his confidence and what is most deeply important to him that the Jewish people carry on is like, a, a growth and transformation moment from a storytelling perspective that you put in the mouth of a beloved main character in the story and the the emotional weight of it as the character is going through the journey telling the story builds. Yeah, no, I certainly see that piece. And also it's almost like the communal agreement. Yeah, we've heard it. God does not like the whole idol thing. We watched it with the golden calf. <laughs> Because of the golden calf incident, we flip around and had to walk in a circle for over 30 more years, right? Like, let's be very real here. You can take a bus from the gate at a lot over to Cairo in five hours. Okay. And that is the desert that the people wandered for 40 years because of an incident with idolatry, essentially. Now, we know as the critical readers of Torah that there was deeper reasons that people weren't ready to be in a land, and that all makes perfect sense. But they were told, nope, not you. So it seems like a no-brainer for Moses to start with that because they've all been in agreement with that. And then they have to keep going into deeper pieces. Okay, I can, I can buy that. I can see it. Mark? You know, it, it seems to me that in a way, um, what the question you're asking is, um, has to do not so much with uh, what we might uh, uh, think that uh, is of concern to God as the motivation of the Deuteronomist, of the author of Deuteronomy um, and the various uh, um, uh, motivations of Moses, what he feels is God's desire, uh, his concern for the uh, uh, survival of, uh, of, uh, of Jews and Judaism uh, in a, a situation where uh, the very physical survival of the country uh, is, uh, is uh, threatened, very seriously threatened, that there, there are very mixed motives here. Um, and so um, uh, I think there are a number of different ways of understanding what's going on. And one of them certainly is that uh, the Deuteronomist wants to express something of Moses' emotion, of Moses' uh, feeling when he has just discovered that after all of his efforts and travail, that he will not enter the promised land, that he is being punished in that way, and yet has this intense feeling, this intense uh, emotional reaction to uh, the uh, the continuation, uh, the, su the success of the people, um, and uh, what they will need to do, what uh, what uh, uh, beliefs and understandings and uh, behaviors they will need in order 
to survive in the land and to be pleasing to God and to not incur God's disfavor. Uh, but there's also the, uh, the political concern of the Deuteronomist. The Deuteronomist is uh, trying, to, trying to, to save what's left of, uh, of the country and wants to consolidate power, uh, wants to uh, uh, make it more compact, more defensible, but also to consolidate the power of the Deuteronomist, the power of the priesthood, to uh, have a kind of central authority and not have it be dispersed and uncontrollable or relatively uncontrollable. Yeah. No, I think there's a lot to that, without a doubt. Uh, Barry. Yeah. Um, um, hopefully my Wi-Fi connection would, uh, would allow uh, you guys to hear me. Um, what, what I've noticed about this set of laws is, is that it comes after we already established a system where if you do something wrong, you might get caught. You have uh, police officers, you have judges, and uh, if you step out of line, you're going to get caught and tried uh, and then punished. However, these laws seem to be of deeds that you are very unlikely to get caught. And the word secret uh, repeats itself several yeah, times. It uh, and this uh, brings me back when, when I was studying uh, the idea of the Islamic State in, uh, back in university, where they say that, you know, when people don't have this fear of God, then you have to place a police officer in every street corner, which would drain the nation's resources. So what we offer you with our Islamic State is a, 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 a place where all people believe that even if they do things they might not get caught doing, they will still be cursed uh, by this divine force. Interesting. So it's a, you're looking at on the side of regulation. Which is fair because, again, we're about to go into a space so, without the leader who's been the mouthpiece of God this entire time. And how do you start to make sure that people make consciously good decisions without being able to judge everyone's conscience? Look, it is no, an it's, a, it's a moment of faith no, to believe that people have a consciousness. Yeah, and, and Moses is already traumatized by being away for uh, 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 40 nights. <laughs> and coming back and seeing, you know, uh, this uh, disaster of idolatry. And uh, so he's very concerned and he's probably very emotional about what's going, going on when he's going to be absent forever. <laughs> yeah. I think that that's uh, a really big, big read on this. I will tell you, there's a, uh, I saw a hand go up and then go down. I want to make sure before we move on, is there anyone else that wanted to add? Okay. I will say that there's a few other pieces that are really worth looking into here. And the one that I'm most intrigued by is something that's just around the corner. Are we to assume that all of these curses, even though we see each of these actions potentially as growing in intensity or at least growing in 
repercussion uh, towards society as a whole. Does our text mention any of them as being worse than another? No, they're all cursed. Um, it reminds me of a story when I was living in Israel. I had two colleagues who were much more proficient in Hebrew, and uh, they were in their apartment, and a uh, Russian electrician came to their house. Now, the only reason I tell you that he's Russian is that in Israel, a large percentage of the Russian population are very observant about some things and very not observant about others, like most of the pork consumption at one point going on in places like Jerusalem, shellfish and pork, was really from the Russian population. They were very uh, strict about the idea of Shabbat, but not about Kashrut. They were very strict about other things from the Torah, but maybe not about things that might have been more routine in day-to-day. And so this electrician did not know that he was in the apartment of rabbinical students and started to talk about the idea that being gay was an abomination because it was in the Torah. Again, this electrician did not know that he was in the apartment of three liberal rabbinical students, one of which happened to be gay. He knew none of this information. He was just in the apartment talking about the fact that it's an abomination. And rather than fight him on what he was saying, one of my colleagues said, as such an interesting word, abomination. Let's look it up in our text. And he pulls it up, but he doesn't pull up to that quote. He pulls up, to eat shellfish is an abomination. And the electrician said, oh, no, that's not the same. And he said, to, to be uh, late or disrespect Shabbat is an abomination. To wear clothing that is half wool and half cotton, abomination. And when you get to this point, you start to realize that part of what our text does so brilliantly is lays out certain rules, but doesn't give you a spectrum or scale of badness, of intensity or concern. And what that does is that allows us to A, be making certain different pieces of it, but B, Now, back in this piece of text, it tells us that there aren't different levels of cursed. There is just cursed. Now, why why do I share that story? First of all, I learned a lot about patience that day because I would have probably used some choice language and told the person to leave the apartment after they finished the electrical work, probably because I wouldn't have known what I was doing in that sense. But my colleagues were able to actually point out something, use our tradition to further a point, and stop someone from extorting our tradition to further a hateful perspective. Now let's go again to this piece of text. Disrespecting your parents, um, uh, idolatry, then it grows into the things like the sexual, sexual misconduct, the lying on the witness stand, the being part of murder, all these things. I know you might say, wait, they need to be valued differently, right? That's what our court of law does. A a different punishment, different uh, responses to different crimes. But in this piece of material, we aren't given that notion. We are given, here are the people and the actions that will be cursed. Um, Yeah, Barry, you were mentioning here, um, yes, which is even more ironically, right, that Russia was one of the first modern nations to legalize same-sex 
relations in general, right? There's, there's a lot of different nuanced pieces of a conversation like that that I find fascinating. But I just love this, this notion of like, yeah, I know it's abomination. So is lobster. Um, and like that's such a, like stops you in the tracks of hatred. Our text is not actually a resource and tool of hatred. Manipulation of our text becomes a resource and a tool of hatred. So by us studying, by us looking at it in a fair and appropriate way, we learn to de, uh, de-weaponize that material in that sense. Any thoughts on that before I pivot us a little bit? I want to share with you a science project I like to do with little kids right at this time of year. At this time of year, I want to teach kids about Tashlich. So I often will take a big, giant bowl of water. And in that big, giant bowl of water, I will then take out a set of, of food dye, the little containers of red, blue, yellow, green food dye. And then I will give every kid an Alka-Seltzer. This is where it becomes a science experiment, of course. Now, before they get to take anything with the Alka-Seltzer, I take the food dye and I have them name different things they've done wrong this year. Lying, one drop of blue. Being unkind to their siblings, one drop of red. Um, I, you, you name the different thing they've done that deserves to make amends for one drop, one drop. And at first, what happens when you drop just a drop of food coloring into water? It basically puddles out a little bit, but stays relatively, um, consolidated and, and, and tighten it. And then once all the drops of water, all the drops of food coloring are in the giant bowl of water, then each one takes their Alka-Seltzer and drops in their Tashlich. And what happens? The Alka-Seltzer begins to bubble. I get to tell them things like you see your sins fizzing away so they can visually see the idea beyond being thrown out that there's actually an evaporation to their mistakes. But what happens to the food coloring? Any guesses? It gets all stirred up. Gets all stirred up. And by the end of our Alka-Seltzer challenge, we have a bowl of brown water. And that's when the real lesson comes in. The kids are all excited. They've watched their fizzing go through. And I say, but now look at the water. And they say, the colors are gone. And I say, the colors aren't gone. The colors are mixed. They've all become one color. And that one color is because no matter which mistake you made, forgiveness is universal. The forgiveness doesn't say, I forgive you this much for this mistake. I forgive you that much for that mistake. Whatever you authentically bring to the table is your mistake. What you own is your shortcomings. God is going to equally dismiss those things. Because at Tashlich, we don't have a prioritization of mistakes. And where do we learn that? In Kitavo. We learn that in the fact that we here, if you'd kept reading, we end up then going into the blessings and then after going through the blessings all the way in 28, uh, 16, it starts to say, curse shall be in your city and curse in your country, curse in your basket and curse in your kneading bowl. It starts to tell you where you're going to feel cursed, all the effects of your curses, but it still doesn't say that some curses are worse than others based on what you did. This piece of text talks about the, the, the universal piece of that idea of the curse. I saw a hand go up. Yes, Dave. Rabbi, you need to get me out of my 
question here. Are you saying that murder is the same as eating lobster in terms of forgiveness? So, so I want to make really, really clear. Forgiveness is not I'm sorry. Forgiveness is tshuva. Forgiveness is hard work. And I'm not saying it's not going to take a different amount of energy and work to get to a place of being able to be divinely forgiven. But I am saying when it comes to God, we don't create a scale of forgiveness. Now, lobster, you're mixing two pieces. What I would say here is lobster is the equal amount disappointing as wearing the wrong kind of shirt, is the equal amount disappointing as other pieces of our text. And that's not even getting into the part of Leviticus 19 that I'm not even sure we read correctly when it comes to the abomination of certain sexual pieces, right? But yes, I am saying Violating Shabbat and eating lobster and wearing the wrong shirt are all considered the same level of no-no in the Torah. So when you acknowledge that, it is the same level of forgiveness. And on the side of curses, what you do might take longer to get tshuva from. It might take you more self-reflection and work and wrestling and painful bringing up of things, but... When you are ready to ask forgiveness from God, the forgiveness is no less or no more. Yeah. I yes. like that. I like that, Rabbi. Yeah. If I, if I steal $50 or a million dollars, I'm still stealing something that's not mine. And by the way, depending on your life circumstance, the stealing might feel like the same weight. I know people who are in hardships in life that $50 is life-changing the way a million might be to someone else. So if they emotionally had the same struggle of good versus bad in the moment, it isn't on God is a universal sense of judgment. We are thinking too deeply about the particular sense of experience and influence of these wrongdoings. And so there has to be a universal balancing of that, right? And the other part is God's forgiveness comes after you've made amends on this earth with the people you've wronged, with the institutions by by doing your time. So it's not saying that there might not be a different amount of work to get back to it. But when we're at the point of God's forgiveness, God does not delineate in those details, and that's an important part of also reflecting this consistent, abundant love of God, that God has the clear-headedness to just say, I'm not going to get caught up in those details. So I have, I have Judith and I have Emelinda. What I'm also hearing is that the, the errors, the misses that we make as individuals affect the entire community. It's not just an individual missing the mark. It affects everybody. So the community and the, the individuals can't separate themselves from the need for forgiveness. And you're going to hear that on Yom Kippur. Ay, yeah. ay, ay, ay. We say Hashem knew, but God knew. We say knew at the end. Why? Because we know there's things on All that we didn't do. But we got to take communal responsibility. One person does something, it's out there. It's happened. And so we, yes, our individual mistakes do affect the community, and we have to take ownership for the mistakes of other people. How does that feel? 
we bear the responsibility of other people's actions. I think we feel that when we hear something in the newspaper about a Jew who has done something really wrong, and we say, oh, he had to be a Jew, too. We, we feel responsible for Jewish behavior when, yeah. it's, when it's missing the mark. When it's missing the mark. Absolutely. Emelinda. At the risk of mixing metaphors, uh, thinking about, uh, Chuba as returning. And if, like, if the goal is for us all to be facing the same direction, whether you're 45 degrees off or 180 degrees off, returning means coming back to that same direction. And, and I, I like that idea that that the the need for us all to return as a community is the same across the board and we all need different adjustments, but the goal is we're all going the same way. We're facing the same direction. And by the way, when we read the Birkat HaKonim, the priestly benediction, when we share this notion that the light of God's face, the brightness of God's face shines down on you, it might've taken 35 degree turn or 180, like you said, but once you're facing that direction, that same brightness is shining down. And there's something to be said about that notion that there is equalizing and that that regardless of status, of wealth, of, of success, of whatever it might be, that there is, at the end of the day, certain things that rebalance us. And I, and I love this notion because when I do that experiment with kids, first of all, they're like, wow, which is hilarious because I went to CVS and spent 12 bucks, right? But on top of it, <laughs> There is something visually helpful for adults too. We tend to rank the mistakes. We think the green was more intense than the blue, was more severe than the red, was as big of a deal as the yellow. But the reality is that's all perspective. It's all bias that we have created, even by the way, intelligently, but still created by living our life in our circumstances and our condition. And as long as we somehow remember that at the end of the day, that's not really the case. And at the end of the day, there is something larger, there is something divine that is going to truly assess and remind us that quite frankly, even though we are saying that building an idol is less less uh, intense than murder, building an idol is disregarding a universal agreement of society. And so is murder. They're both universal agreements that can corrupt the ground we're standing under. If we don't have something at its core to believe in together, eventually we're going to disperse. Now, the pain that each thing causes is different. The timing, the intensity, all of that. But who are we inside of our own biases? I started this conversation through bias. I tried to read through an emotional lens of how Moses would talk to a group of people that he cared about, but that's already has a bunch of conditions of bias and God isn't playing that game. The forgiveness is forgiveness. The curse is a curse. The blessings are blessings. Well, we're looking at curses, but I haven't even gotten the blessing side. Same thing. The blessings here are equalized. So it begs, begs the question why we spend so much time trying to rank and make sense in an order the intensity of wrongdoings or the intensity of good deeds because we think it's going to add or safeguard from uh, the influence of it. But are we wasting time with it? Uh, 
Do I see a hand here, by the way? If there's a hand up, I saw a hand go up and down. Feel free to unmute and just share your thought. Okay. Anyone who thinks this is nonsense? That's okay. We're in an evolving Jewish experience, right? We can, in an evolution, we can, we can, we can disagree. Any thoughts on this? For those of you joining us tomorrow night, you start Slichot. Slichot is for us to get really into that mindset. For us to be really ready to open our hearts, to just be as truthful and vulnerable as we can, to own our mistakes over this last year, to go down to the beach on Monday afternoon of the 26th, to truly cast out our sins and allow, this is a brilliant gift that our tradition gives us, to tangibly feel the, the, the weight being lifted as we cast it out. And then the work begins. And this is all an intentional cycle. And there's no mistaking that we put the end of Torah reading three weeks after, two weeks after Rosh Hashanah. We are supposed to read this portion now. We are supposed to be thinking about this equalizing. We are supposed to be thinking about all of this as we go into this high holiday season. Now, you can take that seriously or you can phone it in, much like everything else we've talked about today. But at the end of the day, the part of the divine, the part of God is going to either way show up with the same level of love and kindness as we go through this experience.